last week, Pastor Cindy in 1 Kings 6, you know, we learned about the priority that Solomon gave the construction of the, of the temple building, okay? And, and in fact, it told us in that last verse of 1 Kings 6 last week, it told us that Solomon spent seven years building the temple. Okay, so today, as we you know, continue this series on the wisdom and folly, uh, it's all about the life and reign of King Solomon. We're going to come to understand some additional things about Solomon's priorities and how he carried them out. Priorities, word we use, okay? But why is it important to establish priorities, either in your life or in your work? Why is it important to establish priorities? Otherwise, we just wander around. Why else? You get distracted. You get, go the wrong way. Yeah, okay, you get distracted and go the wrong way. Yeah, what, why else is it important to establish a priority? Priority kind of gives you like a roadmap of things to do. Things to do first, yes. right? A priority is it's the stuff you need to do first, okay? Some of us in our jobs over the years got so busy uh, I had a friend that uh, invented a new word, okay? Uh, his, the word he invented was a triority. If, yeah, it was three things that all need to be done at the same time, <laughs> you know. But, but for most of us, just, you know, pri- priorities, right? We'll, we'll, we'll get it done. But it's important then to establish those things, like we said, to ensure that the most important things get done. But it also, and, and you mentioned this, Sherry, I think it, was, it keeps us focused, Keeps us focused. Okay, so today, as we start, let's read in 1 Kings chapter 7, the first 12 verses, verses 1 to 12. Um, So, it took Solomon 13 years. Now, remember, we just learned he had spent uh, seven years building the temple. This very next verse starts off and it says, It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. He built the palace of the forest of Lebanon, a hundred cubits long, fifty wide, thirty high, four rows of cedar columns supporting trimmed cedar beams. It was roofed with cedar above the beams that rested on the columns. Forty-five pillars, fifteen to a row. Its windows were placed high in sets of three facing each other. All the doorways had rectangular frames. They were in the front part in sets of three facing each other. He made a colonnade, 50 cubits long, 30 wide. In front of it was a portico, and in front of that were pillars and an overhanging roof. He built a throne hall, a hall of justice, where he was to judge, and covered it with cedar from floor to ceiling. And the palace in which he was to live sat farther back, was similar in design. Solomon also made a palace like this, that hall, for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had married. All these structures, from the outside to the great courtyard and from the foundation to the eaves, were made of blocks of high-grade stone, cut to size, smoothed on their inner and outer surfaces. The foundations were laid with large stones of good quality, some measuring 10 cubits, some eight. The great courtyard was surrounded by a wall of three courses of dressed stones (coughs) and one course of trimmed cedar beams, as was the inner courtyard of the temple of the Lord with its portico. The guy built a lot, didn't he? Okay, it's interesting. 
to me. Here's just one thing. And can we all agree that the Bible is God's word? Okay, that it's all true. And also the order of things that as it comes into the Bible, even the order of things is important. Okay, last week, it's just interesting to me. Last week, chapter 6 was all about the construction of the temple. Okay, now in just a moment, we're going to read some more in 1 Kings 7. And it's going to be all about the furnishings that Solomon had made for in the temple. But right here in the middle, between what we studied last week and what we'll read in a moment, there are 12 verses all about him building his palace. Okay? Um, the palace was to be not only, um, you know, his, his private residence, but it was going to actually be like the center of his administration. Okay? Um, and, you know, it's kind of interesting to me, right? Uh, first of all, he named it the Palace of the Forest of Lebanon. Now, we know from the last couple of weeks that those big, massive cedar trees that he got all came from, from the forests of Lebanon, okay? It's thought that the reason he gave it this name was since he used so many massive pillars, okay, to build the buildings made from the trunks of the cedars of Lebanon that it gave the interior of his palace the appearance of a large forest. It's like walking, walking through the trees, you know, inside, okay? The, palaces, the, the palace complex had five buildings, a reception hall, a hall of pillars, the hall of justice, and that's where, uh, that would serve as Solomon's throne room, okay? Solomon's private residence, and then a similar residence he had made for Pharaoh's daughter. That reception hall, just because I know sometimes, uh, you know, I know Pastor Cindy has helped us sometimes with measurements, converting it to units that we recognize, you know, so that we kind of get a sense of how much, you know, things we're talking about. Um, I'll give you one. So that, that reception hall that he talked about building, okay, that building alone, when you take all the cubits and, you know, we just turn it into feet, okay, that was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. That's over 11,000 square feet. Okay, that's over 11,000 square feet of reception space. I mean, think about it. Solomon could have invited all his friends over to watch football. I mean, that, but that, was, a big, that was a big, big room for him to use. But, but I just want to stop for a second as we, because remember, again, last week we had the, um, the whole construction of the temple. We're about to read more about it. But why do you think that this account of the building of Solomon's palace inserted right in between the two, why do you think it might have been placed here? Any thoughts? We're talking about priorities. Maybe, maybe the writer of this is trying to give us a signal that Solomon was beginning to become distracted. Mm -hmm. 
we remember this whole set of messages about the wisdom and folly. And this may be the first signal that Solomon was becoming distracted from his priorities. Maybe it was an early sign of a little bit of spiritual drifting. And you know, that's something we need to watch out about as well, isn't it? We need to be careful about drifting spiritually. So, let's continue our scripture for today, okay? So we're going to pick up again in 1 Kings 7. This time we'll pick up with verse 13, and we'll read through verse 26. So now we're back to making things for the temple. And it says that King Solomon sent to Tyre, and he brought in a man named Huram, whose mother was a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and whose father was from Tyre, and a skilled craftsman in bronze. Huram filled with wisdom, with understanding, and with knowledge to do all kinds of bronze work. He came to Solomon, and he did all the work assigned to him. He cast two bronze pillars, each 18 cubits high, 12 cubits in circumference. He made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. Each capital was five cubits high. A network of interwoven chains adorned the capitals on the top of the pillars, seven for each capital. He made pomegranates in two rows encircling each network to decorate the capitals on top of the pillars. And he did the same for each capital. The capitals on top of the pillars in the portico were in the shape of lilies, four cubits high. On the capitals of both pillars, above the bowl-shaped part next to the network, were 200 pomegranates in rows all around. He erected the pillars at the portico of the temple. The pillar to the south he named Jachin, and the one to the north, Boaz. The capitals on top were in the shape of lilies, and so the, <laughs> the work on the pillars was completed. Then he made the sea of cast metal, circular in shape, measuring 10 cubits from rim to rim and five cubits high. It took a line of 30 cubits to a measure around it. Below the rim, gourds encircled it, 10 to a cubit. The gourds were cast in two rows in one piece with the sea. The sea stood on 12 bulls, each uh, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, three facing east. The sea rested on top of them, and their hindquarters were toward the center. It was a hand breadth in thickness at its center, and its rim was like the rim of a teacup, like a lily blossom, and it held 2,000 baths. There was a lot of detail there. <laughs> a lot of detail. But you know, that's one of the reasons you need to set priorities. Because otherwise, you'll leave out some of the details. You need to stay focused. Let's look at some of the, we're not going to study every item in total detail. That would take the whole day. But I want to look at a few things that had special meanings, okay? First, it talked about those two bronze pillars. The two large bronze pillars. Pillars, okay, converting back to things we understand. Each of those pillars were 27 feet high and 18 feet in circumference. These things were big. One was named Jachin, which means he will establish. The other was named Boaz, in him is strength. Taken together, those pillars represented that God will establish in strength. God will establish in strength. 
If you have the, uh, the sheet that was in your bulletin and that uh, we referred to last week, you can see those two pillars there on the front uh, in the, uh, the temple portico. Okay, So they're there for you to, to look at. Um, it's, it's interesting, uh, just a little historical note, those pillars, there was so much bronze there that, uh, you know, when the Babylonians uh, came and carried them all off into captivity, attacked uh, Jerusalem, those two pillars were destroyed, broken up, and all of that was carried back to Babylon. Okay? So then in verse 23 to 26, it talked about the sea. Okay, now the sea is also on that same diagram, and it's out here is a big, think of it as a pool, a, a, a really big bowl, okay? Uh, this large dish was basin-shaped. It was about 15 feet across, okay? About 15 feet across, and it held 12 thousand gallons of water. 12,000 gallons of water. Um, and so just kind of, to, again, another reference. 12,000 gallons of water would fill a 16 by 32 swimming pool. Okay? It's kind of that size. Now, the other thing that I thought was pretty amazing, because it was all cast in one, you know, one piece, pretty good work here, it says it was a hand breadth in thickness, you know, like at the center, right out in the middle. And on the edges, it was as thin as a lily, as a teacup. So this is a pretty fine work, right, you know, as it, as it moves out. Practically, uh, its use was it provided water for rituals and washing. All, you know, that would take place around the temple. Spiritually, that large pool represented uh, the sea that the Israelites passed through during the Exodus. The sea stood on the backs of 12 bulls that had been casted, three facing each direction to the outward. The bulls conveyed God's power, evoking reverence from all who saw it. So now, let's read on. In 1 Kings 7, verses 27 to 47, it says, He also made ten movable stands of bronze. Each was four cubits long, four wide, three high. This is how the stands were made. They had side panels attached to the uprights. On the panels between the uprights were bulls, lions, and cherubim, and on the uprights as well. Above and below the lions and the bulls were wreaths of hammered work. Each stand had four bronze wheels, with bronze axles. Each had a basin resting on four supports, cast with wreaths on each side. On the inside of the stand, there was an opening that had a circular frame one cubit deep. This opening was round, and with its base work, it measured a cubit and a half. Around its opening, there was engraving. The panels on the stands were square, not round. The four wheels under the panels and the axles of the wheels were attached to the stand. The diameter of each wheel was a cubit and a half. The wheels were made like chariot wheels. The axles, rims, spokes, and hubs were all cast of metal. Each stand had four handles, one on each corner projecting from the stand. At the top of the stand, there was a circular band half a cubit deep. 
The supports and panels were attached to the top of the stand. He engraved cherubim, lions, palm trees on the surfaces of the supports and on the panels in every available space, all with wreaths all around. This was the way he made the ten stands. They were all cast in the same molds and were identical in size and shape. He then made ten bronze basins, each holding forty baths and measuring four cubits across, one basin to go in each of the stands. He placed five of the stands on the south of the temple, five on the north, and he placed the sea on the south side at the southeast corner of the temple. He also made the pots, shovels, and sprinkling bowls. So, Hiram finished all the work he had undertaken for King Solomon in the temple of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the two sets of network decorating the two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, 400 pomegranates two, uh, for the two sets of network, two rows of pomegranates for each network decorating the bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the ten stands with their ten basins, the sea, and the twelve bowls under it, the pots, the shovels, and sprinkling bowls, all these objects that Hiram made for King Solomon for the temple of the Lord were of burnished bronze. The king had them cast in clay moles in the plain of the Jordan between Sukkoth and Zarethan. Solomon left all these things unweighed because there were so many. The weight of the bronze was not determined. Okay, still a lot more items, but a lot of importance to them. Those, it talks about those ten movable stands. Um, those, those stands are, um, are illustrated also on this same image here. Okay, uh, the examples of them. Uh, these ten movable stands, I mean, let me put it a little more simply for you, okay? They were basically water trolleys. Think of, think of, as a, of, a, of, a, of a, a cart, a trolley cart that you could push that, that on top of, sitting on top of the trolley, it had like a pool or a, a, big, a, a big basin, okay, that could carry 240 gallons of water. Each one of these. This was not a little saucepan. Okay, these were, these were large elements, okay, um, and they were on, it was on a cart with wheels because there were things going on all over the temple area and they needed to be able to move water to different places for different, for different activities. They, what, what I find interesting about this though, did, if you recall the decorations that were on them, it said that basically every surface that you could put an adornment or a decoration on was decorated. These were very, I mean, think about it. These are just water trolleys to move water in the facilitating cleansing and washing and sacrifices and things, okay? This was just tools. Nevertheless, they were engraved with cherubim, lions, palm trees, every available surface. The images corresponded to scenes of paradise in the Garden of Eden. Here's the point. In Solomon's effort to honor God, even the temple's most basic utilitarian items were decorated highly in ways that would exalt God in his creation. We need to have priorities in our life so we don't get distracted. Because when God gives us tasks to do, he, 
We need to do all of it. We need to take care of the details. A lot of times in our life, we kind of cut down through the middle. We sort of do the big part. You know, it'd be kind of like building a house. We, get, we, we build the house, but we forget to, like, put cabinets in the, you know, in the kitchen. There's a house, but there's no cabinets. Can you live there? Sure. But is it, but is it really done properly? Is it functional? Do you, do you see what I mean? We can build a house. We can, have, we can have a water pipe coming up from the city, but if we don't connect it, there's no water. Look, this, this whole thing, the, God gave, there were plans that had been given for everything, and there was a lot of detail. And so this required planning and prioritization to be able to do these things and to do them well. Additionally, it said there were numerous other kind of pots and shovels and sprinkling bowls. Some of them for things, remember, they, to move ashes, okay, to remove ashes, or to gather the blood that would flow, or to wash the altars. First Kings 7.46 said that Solomon had all these items cast in clay moles in the plain of the Jordan between Sukkoth and Zarethan. That was not by mistake. Again, everything that's done is done with a purpose in mind. Sukkot is east of the Jordan. Is east of the Jordan. It's also a place known for metal smelting. Okay? It was also where Jacob, 400 years, or not more, more than that, hundreds of years earlier, had built a temporary dwelling for himself and his cattle. Remember when we were studying the Feast of the Lord and Sukkot was the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, that, okay, that was it. This was where he had built a temporary dwelling for himself and his cattle. This, the fact that Sukkot is mentioned, this represented the nomadic life of the people of God before, right? Before the Promised Land, this, before they crossed the Jordan. Then, on the other side of the Jordan, because it, it says this was all done in the plains of the Jordan by Sukkot and Zarethan. Zarethan is on the west of the Jordan. And as it has been excavated over the years, there have been a lot of signs of metal mining and metal processing in that area as well. It's the site of their river crossing. When they actually crossed over the river, they arrived there. Okay. And it's near Adam, which is, we know from when they crossed, that's where the water heaped up, okay, uh, so that they could uh, walk over on, on dry land. Um, I think it's, isn't it interesting? I mean, even where he, these items for God's temple were cast, there's significance in life before and life after uh, they're in the promised land. And so then finally... Uh, we'll read the last passage for today, which is 1 Kings 7, 48 through 51. And it tells us that Solomon also, uh, he made all the furnishings that were in the Lord's temple, the golden altar, the golden table, on which the bread of the presence was, was there, uh, the lampstands of pure gold, uh, gold floral work, and lamps and tongs, the pure gold basins, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes and censers, gold sockets for the doors, of the innermost room, the most holy place, and also for the doors of the main hall of the temple. When all the work King Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought in the things his father David had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. 
Okay, verses 48 to 50 describe the furnishings that Solomon made for use within the temple. It talks about the golden altar. We also call that, and it's on your sheet as well, the altar of incense. Okay, uh, this was continuously, it was used to continuously burn incense before the Lord. The priests prayed to God for the people at this altar. This altar foreshadowed Jesus our high priest who continuously makes intercession for us before the Lord on our behalf. Romans 8.34 says, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life and is now at the right hand of God, also interceding for us. So everything in the temple, it all foreshadows Jesus. The golden table, the table of the showbread, it talks about. There were always 12 loaves of bread on this table, all the time, representing the 12 tribes. As the loaves were replaced with fresh uh, new loaves, the priests and their families would eat the bread. Pardon me? Yeah, the day, they, the, because who was the fresh bread for? It was for the Lord. It was to honor God. Okay? And... And the, the eating, the priests eating the bread was a representation of their identifying with the needs of the people for that, okay? And we know, we know obviously how this pointed to Jesus because in John 6, 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then there were the, temp, the, the lampstands, the golden candlesticks, it's called. Okay, interesting. I mean, this was not a candlestick. This was actually a lamp. It was made from one solid piece of gold cast in one unit. It was filled with oil, and then there were wicks in each of the, what we would call the candle holder parts, okay, were actually oil with wicks that would burn, okay? So it was actually an oil-filled lamp. It provided light to the priests as they ministered in the holy place, and it symbolized the Holy Spirit illuminating our spiritual understanding of the things of God. It also pointed to Jesus, because Jesus is the light of the world. John 8, 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Look, Solomon in his God-given wisdom had taken on every task regarding building the temple and fabricating all of its furnishings with thought and purpose in mind. No detail was too insignificant. Nothing was too small. It was for God. It deserved his best. It, it needed his priority to focus on it, to ensure that. Solomon made certain that God's priorities were, were his priorities. And so should we in our life. God's priorities should be our priorities. So, like Solomon then, we can ask ourselves the question, how, can, how should we be wise? How can we be wise regarding the priorities we set for our life? Well, the first thing is, we need to, it was said real well earlier, we need to establish clear priorities, right? Because, you know, 
look, we need to listen to God's direction. For Solomon, God told him his priority. It said in Scripture that David wanted to build the temple, but God said, no, my son, your son's going to build the temple. So Solomon was given a priority from God to build my temple. Okay? Every follower of Jesus, you and I, every one of us, has a divine calling. And it will link your gifts to the building of God's kingdom. So we need to ask for God's help in understanding what those priorities are and how to proceed so we can establish clear priorities for our life. The second thing, and this was said very well earlier too, we need to resist drifting. We need to resist drifting. Look, the enemy does not like it when you understand God's call and his priorities for your life. And so what will he try to do? He will try to steer you off course. He will give you a lot of shiny things to go chase that are not God. For us, we might see today in the way that that passage of Scripture was inserted between the two larger passages about the the, the temple, the, the 12 verses we first read about the building of his palace, kind of stuck in the middle, that we may, we may and, and the other bit that I found kind of interesting, that he spent more time building his palace than he did on God's temple. We, we may be beginning, we may start to be seeing the beginnings of the folly in Solomon's life. So, we need to resist temptation because the, the enemy will try to not only get us to drift off course, but to... Have you ever noticed how the enemy can make things that are not that important at the moment seem really important to you? Okay, so what he'll do is he'll try to get you to substitute maybe even a good thing for a great thing, for a God thing. Because... It, Sometimes it's, his real goal is just to get you to not do the thing God has called you to do. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just another thing. Because it's not God's best for you. So we need to resist that drifting. We need to remain focused. Let's be clear. The temple was a magnificent project. Right? Can we all agree on that? It was a magnificent project. And, and we've read, I mean... Uh, I know we had to read it quickly, but we've read about the details of the ornamentation of every last thing in it. Every, every little thing, every tong, every censer, everything had, was symbolic. It had meaning. It was, it was made purposefully for a thing. Okay, But no matter how magnificent this thing was or how carefully and artfully and skillfully it was built, building the temple for God is no substitute for obedience in Solomon's life, or in our life. We need to understand what God's priorities are. We need to fulfill them. The real issue is the obedience of staying on track. Third thing, and this is obvious and final, is complete the task. Complete the task. How many times in our life, look, I don't know about you guys, and I'm not going to ask anybody to show hands, but have anybody ever started a home project in it like 20 years ago and it's still not done? <laughs> no, I mean, you know what I mean? There are just some tasks that we start with good intentions, but for one reason or another, we never complete them. 
that, that, that really good book you were going to read, and you started and read two chapters, and it's, you know, it's dusty in the corner, and you've never finished it. That, you know, you, you, that picture you were going to paint, that, that story you were going to write, that person you were going to call. That, I mean, there are so many things in our life that we have intentions to do, we might even start to do, but we never complete it. Okay? What, when God has given us a task, when God has called us to do something, we need to not only understand it clearly, set the priorities to go after it, resist drifting, but then see it through. Finish it. Finish it. So we need to adequately plan and prepare. God deserves our best. We sing about that every Sunday when we worship Him. We need to live it out daily in our lives. God deserves our best. So stay on course. The Apostle Paul gives encouragement to all of us in how he lived his life, I think. And the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul completed all the tasks assigned to him. Paul, I think we would all agree, never veered off course. No matter the price, no matter the, how inconvenient or, or dangerous it was, or painful, Paul stayed on course, and he completed the tasks that God called him to do. We need to understand Solomon built a temple for the name of the Lord. Today, you and I, we are temples. We are God's dwelling place, both as individuals and as a congregation. As individuals, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies, with your temple. And then, as a congregation... 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. So we've been called... We have tasks. We, are, we don't need to go build a temple for the name of the Lord. We are that temple. We just need to be seeking God to ensure that we know his priorities for our life. And, our prior, and you know, sometimes it's not one deal. For Solomon, it, building the temple apparently was his major thing. Some of us may never be called to do something quite that magnificent quite that public. But you know what? God is calling us to do things. We stay on course. We complete it. And God may give you something else to do. And then something else. Hopefully all our lives. We've said many times, the fact that we're here alive still means there's more to do. Okay, that means God has priorities for you. And so we need wisdom to use them well. Would you guys stand with me as we, uh, as we prepare to close? Um, just a simple uh, thing of self-examination today. If you just close your eyes, bow your heads, just, it's just between you and the Lord. Um, if, 
if you feel like you have, uh, you've maybe begun to drift in, in, you know, following God's priorities for your life, and today you just want to put a stake in the ground and say, you know, I want to make sure I'm back on track with God in the things he would have me do, just raise your hand. Yeah, okay. Lord, today, you've seen our hands, you know our hearts. God, our desire is to to hear your voice. Lord, we want to understand the priorities you have for us. Lord, we want to be faithful, Lord, and not fall off track, not drift, and Lord, we want to complete them. And God, we want to do it with thoroughness and with, with care and with details, to, you know, attention to detail. Lord, we want to do it in a way that brings honor and glory to you, because Father, you deserve our very best. So Father, today, we just... Uh, We just commit our lives to you, our desire to serve you, and ask you, Father, to guide us, grant us your wisdom, Lord, as we establish the priorities in our life. In Jesus' name. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Amen.